to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. This has been a busy week, my friends, and I want to talk about as much of the news as I can. There were, of course, the demonstrations all over the country to support Black Lives Matter and the reform of the police, and we'll talk about that. But at the same time, there were more deaths of black men at the hands of the police, underscoring the need for change. And I want to talk a little bit about our American history and why we need to remember it, not erase it. Then there are new stories about the coronavirus, about a second wave, and the newest numbers. But there's more to the story than it seems. Is there really a second wave? And what do the newest numbers really mean? And speaking of COVID-19, things are also happening in China, where they are struggling with a new outbreak of the Wuhan coronavirus. And this time it's in the capital, Beijing. It's the third outbreak they've had so far. So, despite their boasting about having an answer to the virus, they are still not able to get it under control. And in North Korea, there's another story. There's a new sheriff in town, and she's already threatening South Korea. Her name is Kim Yo-jong, and she's replacing her brother, Kim Jong-un. You remember him, the big roly-poly guy with a big smile and the evil heart? He hasn't been seen in several months, and the best intelligence suggests that he is dead. And just to add to the intrigue, Rumor has it that she's even more evil than he was. And then there's a story about a young boy taking a class online when the police come to his home because of something the teacher saw in his bedroom. That's scary. But then there's a story of great courage, and it's one where we still don't know the ending. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. And let's begin in Seattle. The situation there is a mess. Following days of demonstrations, six city blocks known as Capitol Hill were appropriated last week by people who say they are Black Lives Matter activists. And they have named what they call their Autonomous Zone, CHAZ, for Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They took over the area and their purpose was to drive the police out which they did. They put up plastic jersey barriers at all the entrances, blocking all the streets, and painted signs on them that said, quote, Welcome to free Cap Hill, no cops allowed, and you are now leaving the USA. They also attacked the police's East Precinct building, and believe it or not, the cops just left. They didn't put up a struggle. They just packed up their sensitive and expensive equipment and left. The demonstrators then declared that they are a cop-free zone. Hmm. They were under orders from the chief of police, Carmen Best, who got her orders from Mayor Jenny Durkin. The first night after the takeover was relatively calm. But over the next few days, all hell broke loose when a man drove his car into a crowd of demonstrators, and another man got shot. 
So what do you do when you have a problem like that and there are no police? Well, you call 911, of course, and the fire department sends an ambulance to take the wounded man to the hospital. Who needs the police? Oh, right. 911 is a police public safety service. But who needs the police? Right. The Seattle police feel like they're being completely abandoned by Mayor Durkin. And by the way, they're justified in feeling that way. They have been abandoned. Chief Best said in a letter to her officers, quote, The decision to board up the precinct, our precinct, our home, the first precinct I worked in, was something I had been holding off. You should know leaving the precinct was not my decision. Seattle radio host Jason Rance made that clear when he said that the SPD has been pretty much advised do not respond to 9-11 calls inside this zone unless there's some sort of mass casualty event. One of the things I've been worried about is this. Who lives inside this autonomous zone and how are they managing? Not only are there businesses in the zone, but there are also several apartment complexes as well. What's happening to the people who live there? Well, here is a small snapshot. People in the zone have used Twitter to put out a call asking for Gatorade, cigarettes, vegan food, and guns. Vegan foods? Guns? You might as well be particular if you're going to ask for something. Among the problems they have encountered is that the people who live in this six-block area, as well as homeless, have been running out of food. And in addition to hunger, crime also seems to be a big problem. Assistant Chief of Police Deanna Nolette has referred to anecdotal reports that both private citizens and businesses within the zone have been asked, I put that in quotes, to pay a fee to operate within the autonomous zone. We call that extortion. And some residents in the area have also complained that armed men have demanded to see identification when they try to enter their own homes. And there's more. The area looks like a war zone with boarded up businesses and endless graffiti demanding that the police be killed. At night, the criminals living in Chaz, oh, excuse me, while I was not looking, they changed the name to CHOP. Anyway, the criminals come out at night and ravage what's left of the stores and businesses in the area. Trader Joe's has closed indefinitely, and other store owners just pray for the best. Many of the residents are angry about what has happened to their neighborhood, but they're also fearful about what is going to happen next. Mayor Jenny Durkin is clearly on the side of the protesters. This week, she posted a tweet that said, quote, Today at the at BLM Seattle KC Silent March, community walks to abolish the school-to-prison pipeline, end biased policing, and undo centuries of systematic racism in our country. The march may be silent, but the message is loud and clear. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Unquote. But the mayor and the chief of police are at loggerheads because while the mayor supports the takeover, and in fact was the one to order the police to withdraw, Chief Best wants the opposite. She wants the East Precinct reopened and operating as quickly as possible. The president is also involved, although from the sidelines. As I understand it, 
he can call up the National Guard, but only at the request of the governor. And Washington State's governor isn't asking. Last week, the president tweeted, quote, Radical left governor at Jay Inslee and the mayor of Seattle are being taunted and played at a level that our great country has never seen before. Take back your city now. If you don't do it, I will. This is not a game. These ugly anarchists must be stopped immediately. Move fast, unquote. But Inslee isn't moving anywhere. He arrogantly told the president, quote, a man who is totally incapable of governing should stay out of Washington State's business. Stop tweeting, unquote. But Inslee, he's the governor whose major city is under assault by anarchists who have essentially taken over part of it. How dysfunctional can you get? And Mayor Durkin also responded to the president with a rude reference to Trump's May 29th trip to a White House bunker as people demonstrated in Lafayette Square outside. Quote, make us all safe, she tweeted. Go back to your bunker. And she is the one who allowed the anarchists to take over a major part of Seattle's downtown. She let them in and she let them stay, and she ordered her police department to vacate, to scurry away from their East Precinct. Isn't it interesting that the people who were elected to govern the state of Washington are now contributing to its descent into anarchy and lawlessness? More than interesting, it's disgraceful, and it's reprehensible. These people should be impeached and sent packing. They won't be, of course, which is a major part of the problem. If there was any confusion about what the ultimate goal of the Seattle takeover was, or the demonstrations around the country, the New York Times op-ed section cleared that up for us last week with an op-ed by Mariam Kaba, who wrote, quote, Yes, we mean literally abolish the police. Enough. We can't reform the police. The only way to diminish police violence is to reduce contact between the public and the police. There is not a single era in United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people." Unquote. So America is in the middle of a pivotal moment that is likely to make a difference to all of us as we go forward. And to a certain extent, that's a good thing. Change is the constant that drives our lives and makes them interesting and challenging, and change is ultimately the driver of innovation and progress. It's how we move forward. So we can't look at these demonstrations and not address the root issue that brought them about. However we may feel about the demonstrations and the takeover of Seattle, the issue that triggered it all, the racial inequities that have existed in this country for hundreds of years, are real and disturbing. And they are no less real today than they were a hundred years ago. They're just different. They're more subtle, perhaps, and harder to challenge. But for people of color, they are real. And they are the stumbling blocks that stand in their way as they try to achieve success in America. Some have made it. Many have made it. But there are many more who are still left behind because of the racial prejudices and inequities that still exist in America. The word on the street and part of the argument that we hear 
almost every day, is that a disproportionate number of the people who are killed and injured by police are black. Assistant Professor Peter Moskos from John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City doesn't agree. He has reported that during the period from May 2013 to May 2015, approximately half of those killed by the police were white, while only 30% were black. And here are some numbers, more numbers. Approximately 1,000 people in this country are shot and killed by police every year. There's a website called killedbypolice.net on which is listed all the people who have been killed by police in any particular year, going back to 2013, as reported in the local and national press. So you already know that these numbers aren't completely accurate because they are incomplete. The people who have been listed on this site by date, name, age, gender, race, and state where the killing took place are all documented by links to the source. According to this site, in 2020, 473 people have already been killed by police this year. 108 of those people, of the 364 in the database, were not listed by race. But where race was noted, 187, or 39.5% of the total, were white, and 99, or 21% of the total, were black. In the full year of 2019, when 1,004 cases of police killings were reported in the press, the numbers were even clearer. 183 cases were listed where race was not recorded, but of those recorded, 860, that's 85% of the total, were white, and 249, about 25%, were black. So what's my point? My point is that Although it seems as though the number of black men and women killed by police is disproportionate to the number of white people killed by police, it is likely that the notoriety that is achieved by these killings makes it seem as though a much larger number of black people are killed by police than white people. But the numbers don't bear that out. It just isn't true. Anyway, it doesn't make the killing of black men and women any less serious, but it does simply point out that our perception is different from the reality. And this is part of our problem because we are largely unaware of the facts when we charge out onto the street and demand dramatic change for a situation that, as bad as it is, is not as bad as they say it is. And that brings me to another issue. Why are the demonstrators so uninformed about the history of racism, about slavery in this country, about the inequities of life in America? When the so-called cancel culture demands that we tear down the statues of Confederate generals and even of our founding fathers because they owned slaves, that we rewrite the history books to erase the evils of slavery, so that we don't have to be reminded of the times when black people were enslaved, humiliated, and tortured by their white owners. But a wise man once said that, quote, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, unquote. And how far away from that are we now? 
when anarchists have taken over a piece of a city, imposed tyranny on its citizens, when the demonstrators demand the destruction of symbols like George Washington and Christopher Columbus because they offend them and they view the evils that slavery imposed on innocent people through 21st century eyes. That view will always be distorted and it will always be dangerous. Where does the past end and the present begin? And where is the future taking us? I have a few more things to say about this. So when I come back, I'll wrap it up. And then I have some stories about the coronavirus, that nasty little bug that has kept most of us at home and made many of us sick. And I'll report to you some of the latest news about how we intend to fight it. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Before the break, I was talking about how the rioters who destroy our statues and monuments and who want to rewrite our history are so determined to view our national history through the lens of the 21st century. And I will get back to that in a minute. But first, there is something that I want to say about the large, peaceful, but passionate demonstrations that concerns me a lot. Because large groups of people marching without any firm leadership can quickly turn into a mob given the right trigger. And mobs are not peaceful. They destroy property. They damage and destroy cherished landmarks, statues, and monuments. And in many cases, they hurt each other. It's the difference between a movement for social change and anarchy. We've seen this many times before in our history, and we will no doubt see it again. But consider this. During the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the movement was led with a strong hand by Dr. Martin Luther King. He insisted that the marches, the sit-ins, the bus-ins were all peaceful. That was his mission. And he kept his followers from rioting, from fighting with the police, and did his very best to keep them as safe as possible. This was a peaceful movement, and he made sure that it stayed peaceful. Even when the police used violence, and they did it a lot, even when they were attacked by civilians, the demonstrators were peaceful, and they stayed peaceful. And although they lost a few battles, they won the war. But this movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, has no discernible leadership. The demonstrations form around the passions of good people who are angry about the resistant prejudice that mars the lives of black and brown people in America. And they want better. But the lack of a strong leader who will help them carry their message peacefully is a serious danger. Maybe out of this disorder, 
A new leader will arise who will bind this movement together into one that will bring America to a better place, as Dr. Martin Luther King did. And that will make all that we are going through now worth the pain. Now, there's something else about the rioters that I want to talk briefly about. History. And how their perception of history is totally wrapped around their understanding of life today. They seem to have no understanding of what it meant to be living in the 17th and 18th century and how different the perceptions of life were then and how it explains so much we have changed since then. Life was hard then. Travel was difficult. Communications took days and weeks. There were no power tools or machines to make our lives easier. Now, that has never been an excuse for slavery, but it has been a fact of life for thousands of years. Slavery was banned in the Judeo-Christian tradition way back in biblical times, but it was practiced freely in other cultures, including Muslims in some societies, in accordance with permission given to them in the Quran and still practiced by some in the Middle East and Africa. In a pure and humane world, the practice of human slavery would be banished forever by everybody. But this is not a humane world. And if we want to be a humane people here in America, then slavery should never be a part of our culture. That is our view in the 21st century. But it wasn't always so. Since the 17th century, when human slavery was legal and an accepted practice, since then, we have matured and recognized how evil it is to own another human being for any reason. This development in our culture has made us wiser and a little kinder and a leader in the free world. But we're not perfect. So it's important that we do not forget our history and the evils that we see today but didn't see then, such as the institutional slavery that treated human beings as objects that could be owned and used, or the accepted existence of orphan asylums that used children as virtual slaves and kept them uneducated and impoverished, or our behavior toward the Native Americans who were here long before we were and whom we mistreated so brutally, and much more. It is very important, essential in fact, that we teach our children our real unvarnished history so that they will understand how far we have come from where we were in the 17th century. But the education of our children has failed them and us over the last few decades. Instead of being taught to think critically, instead of studying the history and the men and women who made America what it has been and what it is today, and instead of being taught this history within the context of its times, our children have been taught other things. They've been taught, for example, that all they had to do was show up and they would get a prize. Instead of studying history and civics and the literature of the greatest minds in the world and how to think critically, they were taught about sensitivity, about gender identity, and about the rules of universal equality that dumbs down the brightest and limits their possibilities. Winning a prize for just showing up, 
Limiting competition among peers doesn't teach our children about life in the real world, where competition is not only real, it's an essential skill. And because they never really studied history within the context of its times, our children only learned how to apply the 21st century point of view to events that occurred hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. The increasingly flawed education of our children has led us to a time when they condemn our founding fathers for not sharing the sensibilities of today because our children have no idea what it was like to live in the 17th and 18th century. And so they clamor to tear down the symbols of our shared history and the reminders of how far we have come from the days when it was still acceptable to own another person. We broke that mold and we forged a new path. Sure, it's a flawed path and we've made some big mistakes in the process, but we are learning and we are still trying. And although the demonstrations of today are based on imperfect and immature constructs, they will make a big difference in our future. This is important, my friends, because as we allow our children to destroy our history, we will all lose touch with who we are supposed to be. We've come a long way since the days of our founding, and the path we have taken has taught us so many lessons along the way that we need to remember. The world gets more complicated every day, but not necessarily nicer. So these lessons, if we remember them, will help to center us and remind us, as I have said, of who we are supposed to be. Even though there are more questions than answers, what we need to do is keep trying to use our past as the foundation for building our future. If we ever forget where we come from, or how we got to where we are today, we will never be able to build a future that will sustain us. Okay, on to another topic. Now, what is new in the world of COVID-19? The scientific and medical communities are still largely at sea when it comes to understanding this virus completely. There is a general consensus that this virus was manipulated in a laboratory in China and so it has characteristics that are difficult to understand, to predict, and to treat. New symptoms keep showing up, and the possibility of new treatments do as well. Some treatments are favored for a while. They're used, and then they're largely abandoned in favor of other treatments. The emergency use, for example, of hydroxychloroquine, which so many people swore by, including the president, has now been dropped by the CDC as a treatment for COVID-19. In England, scientists are now promoting the use of a common steroid drug called dexamethasone as a major breakthrough, they say. They claim that it has reduced the death rate in patients who are severely ill with COVID-19 by a third for patients on ventilators and by a fifth for patients who need oxygen. We'll see. The good news is that biotech firms all around the world are working feverishly to find three things. A test to accurately identify COVID-19 and report it quickly, a therapy to cure it, and a vaccine to prevent it. So here's a bit of a rundown. 
Israel has one of the most highly developed biotech industries in the world. They have been trailblazers in many areas of medicine and therapy. Now, with the COVID-19 ravaging the world, a number of both mature and young entrepreneurial firms are working to find one of these three things. A couple of months ago, I told you about a research firm in northern Israel called Migal, or the Galilee Research Institute. They had already been working on a vaccine to prevent infectious bronchitis in poultry when the COVID-19 struck. And then they found out something very interesting. Because by chance, when they were looking for a vaccine for the bronchitis, they chose a coronavirus as the basis for their research. And when they looked at the DNA sequencing, they found that the poultry virus was very similar to the Wuhan virus. The two viruses not only had similar genes, but the mechanism that they used to infect cells were similar. So by tweaking the vaccine for the bronchitis, the scientists think that they will be able to have an effective vaccine for COVID-19. If their assumptions are correct, they believe they will have an effective vaccine soon, although the human trials, which are necessary before a vaccine is released to the public, will still take some time as they always do. Another Israeli company called Pluristem treated six critical patients suffering from COVID-19 in Israel who were considered at high risk and were treated with Pluristem's placenta-based cell therapy, and they survived. Israel has something called a compassionate use program, which is not unlike our own right to try law, which allows terminal patients the right to try experimental drugs in the hope that they will save their lives. The Israeli patients in this trial were treated at three different Israeli hospitals for one week under this program. They were all suffering from acute respiratory failure and inflammatory complications associated with COVID-19. Four of the patients were also suffering from heart and kidney failure. So the fact that these patients survived is significant. Pluristem is now preparing to enter into multinational clinical trials that will be the real formal trials that will make or break this drug in the market. In another Israeli innovation, the Technion, which is Israel's answer to MIT, and Rambam Medical Center have invented a way to test more than 60 patients simultaneously. The method pools multiple samples in a single test tube and can identify the presence of an asymptomatic patient in the mix. The scientists working on this expect that it will greatly increase the volume of samples that can be tested every day and hope that it can reduce the chance of infection and flatten the infection curve. Bioscientists in universities, industry, and government in countries all around the world are all working to create a vaccine and the therapies and tests that are all required to beat this virus. But it will take time. Not only do drugs take time to develop, but the time it takes to test them, first in the laboratory and then in human trials, can be very long. In addition, there are so many different ways to develop therapies, vaccines, and tests, and there are also different ways of delivering them. But the competition is on, and the winners will save millions of lives over the coming years. 
And then there is the question of whether or not there will be a new wave of infection after the first wave has died down. The Spanish flu, which appeared a hundred years ago, came in three waves, the first of which was the weakest, but the two that followed killed more than 50 million people worldwide. Will that happen with this virus? The answer is, we just don't know. But there's one more piece to the COVID-19 story. In some places throughout the United States and in other countries around the world, the number of confirmed cases is going up again. But it's not a second wave. Really? So what is it? Well, as the test for COVID-19 becomes more widely available and the results come back more quickly, more people are being tested. And as more people are being tested, more cases are being found and confirmed. Many of these cases are asymptomatic. So without the greater number of tests, we would never have known about them. And in some cases, the symptoms are so mild that people don't even know they're sick. So the number of cases goes up, although there is no spike. Only a better understanding about how many people are really infected with the virus and maybe how it spreads. The real measure of the condition of our country is in the number of hospitalizations there are of confirmed COVID-19 patients. And that is how we should be assessing the severity and the spread of the pandemic. COVID-19 is not going away, it seems. So it's something we had better get used to. But the work that is going on in the development of therapeutics, vaccines, and tests is very encouraging. And in the meantime, keep wearing your masks, washing your hands, maintaining social distance, and staying safe. It's truly worth the effort. And speaking of COVID-19, China has a new battle on its hands. They're now fighting a new epidemic, and it's not in Wuhan or in southwest China, but it's in the capital city of Beijing with its population of 21.5 million people. The Chinese National Health Commission has warned that the risk of the epidemic spreading is very high. So once again, they have blamed the new rash of infections on a live food market and claimed that they have found the COVID-19 on a wooden chopping block used to cut imported salmon. They've locked down at least 11 neighborhoods in the area and have begun a program of testing 46,000 people who may have visited the market or who live nearby. Official accounts from China, of course, claim that since the virus showed up last year, a total of 83,181 people in China have been affected, of whom 177 are still active. The official death toll remains at 4,634, although unofficial intelligence estimates are in the millions. So much for Chinese accounting and reporting. But we knew that. Now, after the break, which is coming right up, I want to talk to you about Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea who has disappeared. You knew that. But the person who it appears will be taking his place is Kim Yo-jong, his sister. And she is a real piece of work and a very big story. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. 
Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. So what's the story with Kim Jong-un? Is he old news? You don't see much about him anymore in the press. Well, he disappeared in April and the report was that he had undergone heart surgery and was recovering. But there were other reports at the time that the operation performed by Chinese surgeons had somehow been botched. Nobody really questioned that he needed the surgery. Since he was famous for his overindulgence in food, liquor, and women, he was morbidly obese and had had health issues in the past. He was also known to have had as many as three body doubles who, it was reported, were called into service when Kim was too ill to appear himself. Or, as some reported, he was already dying or dead. Back on April 29th, I told you that the Japanese media had reported that Kim was now comatose, in a vegetative state, they said. And I also said that a usually reliable Chinese source had reported that Kim was confirmed dead. That was consistent with intelligence I was getting from my own sources, so I was perfectly comfortable reporting it to you. In any case, now six weeks later, the Supreme Leader is still MIA, and although there has been no funeral, there has been a lot of talk about his sister already taking his place. And if you have been listening regularly to this show, you already know something about her. When I told you back in April about the mysterious disappearance of Kim Jong-un, I also talked about his equally mysterious sister, Kim Yo-jong. Well, she's back in the picture, big time, and she's already making a lot of noise. So here's the story. Since we no longer see his smiling face in the news, except on the web pages of the mainstream media, who haven't seemed to have figured it out yet that he's really gone, we need to assume that Kim Jong-un is not only MIA, but that he is gone. Gone, one way or another. So if that was true then, it's equally true now. So what happens now? Kim Yo-jung is a blood relative of Kim Jong-un, and she is in the direct bloodline of succession, according to the tradition in North Korea. The line of succession in North Korea has, until now, led from father to son. It began with Kim Il-sung, the grandfather, who founded present-day North Korea, and it passed on from him to his son, 
Kim Jong-il, who passed it on to his son, Kim Jong-un. But if Kim Jong-un died, who is there to succeed him? The order of succession in North Korea requires that the offspring of the supreme leader should succeed him in the event of his death. And although Kim Jong-un is thought to have had three children, but if they exist, and they may or may not, because things in the hermit kingdom are so secret, nobody really knows. But if they exist, they are far too young to succeed him and rule over the country. He also has a brother, Kim Jong-chol, but he was reported deemed unfit to rule by his younger brother, Kim Jong-un, who took power instead. And more than that, it is thought that little sister, Kim Yo-jong, had a large role in that power play. So little sister, it seems, is Kim Jong-un's nearest relative, but also, as I said, his most trusted advisor. When Kim Jong-un first disappeared, rumors about her succeeding him went flying around. At first, it was widely assumed in the event of his death that would not happen because the leaders of North Korea were adamantly, vehemently against any woman taking the reins of power in North Korea, period, full stop. But it seems that they did not reckon with Kim Yo-jong. According to some sources, she is secretly known as the Black Widow, and she is from all counts at least as cruel and dangerous as her brother. So if she had set her eye on her brother's position, she would do whatever it took to get it, with or without the permission of the party elders. And from everything I've heard from my intelligence sources, there is no doubt that she has absolutely seized control of both the government and the military. Although North Korea cynically calls itself the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the structure of its government is more like a Stalinist dictatorship, a one-party state that controls all the means of production and everything else with an iron fist. In fact, the government controls virtually every area of life as it relates to the people of North Korea. Kim Jong-un had the title of Supreme Leader of North Korea and was also Chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea, Chairman of State Affairs Commission of North Korea, and the Supreme Commander of the Korean People's Army. But now, there's a new game board, it seems, and Kim Yo-jong has been playing a strong hand, strong enough to seize the power that she believes she's entitled to. She is, as I've said, rumored to be brutal, and we may never know what she has done to secure her position as the new leader of North Korea, including the possibility of killing her adversaries. Her brother, father, and grandfather were guilty of the murder of millions, and with the most extraordinary cruelty. Under Kim's regime, there was a network of secret political prison camps run by the secret police where the population was controlled by terror, starvation, and where many of the prisoners were simply worked to death. These camps were once described by a survivor of Nazi concentration camps as worse than anything he had ever seen. It is estimated that as many as 70,000 people may be imprisoned in the two types of camps, 
the penal camps for people who are made to forcibly disappear, and long-term prison camps. In these camps, thousands of starving inmates are forced to work long hours at hard labor and are beaten when they falter because of their weakened condition. Although the regime denies the existence of these camps, their presence and the condition under which they are operated is well documented. So this is the world that Kim Yo-jong has inherited, and I have no doubt that she will fit right in. There's no reason to expect that she would rule in any other way. In fact, there may be good reason to expect that she could take that cruelty to a new and more horrible level than he did. And she has begun her reign with some dramatic actions. Among her first pronouncements was a threat against South Korea, saying that North Korea was cutting off all government and military communication channels with the South. And she's threatened to abandon the bilateral peace agreements between the North and the South, which her brother and South Korea's President Moon had negotiated in a series of three meetings two years ago. Then, within the last week, North Korea moved four motorized rifle divisions and two tank divisions comprising two army corps, or approximately 10,000 men, and additional independent heavy artillery. They moved all of this military power to the demilitarized zone on the South Korean border. The heavy artillery corps, by the way, is carrying mobile rocket launchers equipped with nuclear missiles. Some analysts have suggested that because the North was unsuccessful in getting its way in the nuclear talks, they are now ready to provoke South Korea in order to win concessions. But I don't agree. That explanation just oversimplifies the underlying issues. Kim Yo-jong needs to show her government that she is powerful and strong enough to lead her country, even though she is a woman. She has won the battle for position, and now she is proving her supremacy. She has taken complete command of the government and the military. So this is not about the economy in North Korea, although that certainly has been badly affected by both the U.S.-led sanctions and the coronavirus pandemic. But this is about something else. It's about power, her power. And she will do whatever it takes to consolidate it. In a further show of her new power, she ordered an inter-Korean liaison office building just north of the border with South Korea to be blown up. They could see it. It was an empty building, and it had already been announced that it would be destroyed. But the act was symbolic because of the surprise and because it drew world attention. The Kim dynasty was always ruled with unconscionable cruelty keeping their people in abject poverty and fear and leading the country in deep secrecy. And there is no hope that this new leader will be any kinder, any more beneficent to the people of North Korea. If anything, she will be even more ruthless than those who preceded her. Kim Jong's brutal cruelty, once seen only in private, will now be on display for the whole world to see. She is laying down the gauntlet and daring the South or any other country to challenge her. The South now has moved some of its own troops to its northern border, 
but the South's military will be no match for North Korea's forces, and if there is a battle there, South Korea will be heavily damaged. Last year, there was some hope for a resolution between the two countries, but Kim Yo-jong has erased any optimism. What will happen next is anyone's guess. We do not know her, and if she is as unpredictable as her brother was, whatever she does will come with shocking suddenness. She is a deep well. She appears to have fewer inhibitions than her brother did, and she may prove to be far more dangerous than he ever was. And she seems determined to challenge the status quo. So stay tuned. This is far from over. In fact, it's just beginning. Again. I promise you two more stories, one about stupidity and one about courage. They're short, and the endings are nowhere in sight, but they're worth a quick listen, so here they are. In Maryland, as in most of America, the schools are closed, and children have been learning in virtual classrooms. One 11-year-old in Baltimore County was in his bedroom attending his class via the Internet when there was a knock on the door of his home. It was the police. The officer explained that he was there to search the home for weapons. It seems that the boy's teacher had seen a BB gun in his room during this virtual class, and she had taken a screenshot of it and then sent it to other school authorities, and they called the police. The school's principal said, wait for it, that the boy having a BB gun in his room was like him bringing a gun to school. What rubbish! First of all, no one was ever in danger. And then, did you know Maryland doesn't have any laws pertaining to BB guns unless they're used in a crime or if someone is injured? Anyone, even a child in Maryland, can possess one. It just goes to show the stupidity of every member of that liberal progressive staff who were involved in this situation and the inane fear of guns that make people who know nothing about firearms do crazy things if they ever see one. And by the way, what does it say about the teacher that she would take a picture of the boy's bedroom and then send it around to her colleagues? And here's another question. If this boy had been sitting in the kitchen next to a cutting board and there had been a large knife on the cutting board, would that have been viewed as a weapon? What about a hammer or a baseball bat? Where does this teacher draw the line? Okay, I'll tell you where I draw the line. If the teacher had a problem, she should have first addressed this with the principal and then with the parents. The parents. The police should never have been in the picture at all. Nobody was threatened. Nobody was harmed. There is no law in that state against owning a BB gun. And the teacher was way out of line. And so was the principal. It's way beyond stupid. I think the next thing I would have done would have been to withdraw my kid from school. You just can't make this stuff up. Now here's the other side of the coin. It's all about individual courage. This week, one of China's most famous soccer stars... Hao Heidung issued a call to his countrymen 
to overthrow Beijing's communist government. Wow. He posted an hour-long video on the 31st anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And in this video, he openly called for the overthrow of the Chinese government and he pledged his support for a new free government. How holds the all-time record as the leading scorer in Chinese soccer history? He's a famous guy. In this video, he said, quote, the most fundamental reason that I spoke out today against the system is that I think the Chinese people and China's future should no longer be trampled upon by it. I think the Chinese Communist Party should be kicked out of humanity. The ghost of communism should no longer be allowed to drift in this world. This is what I have concluded after 50 years of living. The Communist Party's totalitarian rule in China has caused horrific atrocities against humanity, he said. The government is a terrorist organization that has trampled over democracy, violated the rule of law, and dishonored lawful agreements. Unquote. The video appeared on the website of Guo Wengai, a Chinese billionaire who is a dissident leading a group called the New Federal State of China. It's an opposition movement. Both Howell and his wife, who is herself a popular badminton star, say that they are willing to accept whatever punishment the communist regime hands to them. And they called their decision to record the video the biggest and most correct decision in our lives. Unquote. It didn't take long for the Chinese government to block the video, along with all of Howell's social media pages. The reason I told you this story, my friends, is that this was an act of extraordinary courage in a country where the movements of every citizen are tracked on their cell phones. There is no privacy, and they knew that, and where loyalty to the Chinese communist government is a requirement of what little freedom they have. I hope you will join me in praying for the safety of Ho and his wife. They will need all the prayers that we can send them. Thank God there are people of such courage to fight for what is right and to inspire us all to do the same and to help make this world a better place. Well, we are out of time, my friends. Thank you for spending this hour with me. Have a good week. Stay well. Stay safe. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman. And this has been The Friedman Report.